0: You're listening to the Unsiloed podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc.
1: Welcome to uh, Unsiloed. This is uh, Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Alex uh, Bezarides, who is at Lewis Clark State College, and he is the author of Evolution Gone Wrong, curious reasons why our bodies work or don't. Alex, I have to say this was probably, well, actually I'll say almost certainly this was the funniest book uh, <laughs> around, about evolutionary biology that I have, I've ever read.
0: You know, I've That's read quite a was, few books. That was, that was one of my goals. Consider that box checked.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and, I was, and, and I've read plenty, plenty of books and, and there's definitely some, some ground that I've, I've encountered elsewhere, but you have this unifying narrative, right? Which is that Evolution does a pretty good job, but it's not perfect. And I remember I used to teach this class on economics and biology, and the the first book that I had everybody read was this one called Optima for Animals. I don't know if you remember this, this mm-hmm. book, but it was really cool because what it tried to illustrate was that every design feature in organisms was a product of of trade-offs, right? So you have to trade off strength versus weight. And evolution somehow magically always got the right answer, right? It always understood all these these trade-offs. So kind of as if it was designing from scratch like an engineer. And I think what, what you point out is that, well, there's this path dependence and that, you know, you can't get from A to B necessarily, because you can't really skip steps and that evolution requires you to move through a series of adjacent steps. And that often leads to some some interesting design features or maybe design bugs. And then there's another theme I think that runs through the book, which is that we're designed for an environment. And, and then there's maybe uh, you know the environment in which we find ourselves might be missing some key functionality, which we might've gotten from our environment in the past, which we're, we're unfortunately not getting now. And so while some of these features may be unavoidable, the bugs, there may be some ways that we can kind of mitigate the worst effects of the bugs. All right, I hope that's a fair <laughs> summary of your of your narrative.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's a very good summation of the thesis. I think ultimately the, the pros have to outweigh the cons or the animal doesn't <laughs> survive and reproduce and go on. And I, I felt like there were a fair amount of books written out there about sort of the the elegance and beauty of evolution and all the amazing things that it set up the human body for. And that's all certainly true. I mean, it's led us down this path that is you know, unlike any other animal and allows us to to control our environment in ways no other animal can. But there's the other side of the coin, right? There's always those trade-offs that come along. And sometimes you don't even realize that those trade-offs are... Or maybe something that has been made until the environment changes or until something happens that puts you in a position where all of a sudden, you know, you're not in a in as strong a spot as you thought you were. And to me, those are the interesting stories of evolution. And and once I started looking for them in the body, I kind of got turned on to the idea of sort of, I started down this path of why our teeth don't fit in our mouths. And, and the more I read about it, the more I learned that it has all these fantastic aspects that are outside of biology, all these cultural and social pieces about the control of fire and tool use and all these really wild things. I, I started reading this book called, I think it's called Fork. It's on my shelf somewhere. That was just all about the history of cutlery and how humans have handled their food. Mm-hmm. And I thought, man, and I, I realized the answer to that question is so complex, but also so fascinating that I thought that I want to start writing about this. And then after I'd kind of got some things down on paper there. I started to look for other places in the body that don't work quite as well as you might expect. And they just started sort of rolling from one system to the next as I would be teaching in a semester of anatomy and physiology. We'd get to the digestive system and we'd find something there that was totally clunky that we didn't usually talk about. And I'd I'd work on that and slowly but surely I put together kind of enough material to to have something.
1: Well, you mentioned that you teach uh, anatomy and physiology and and that this is you know i don't you know i've been in university my entire life and i've never actually taken a course on this and and you mentioned early in the book that this is a subject that is taught pretty much at every university at every college but but it's usually taught in a very you know this is how it works boom end of story full stop and maybe you do some dissection and you kind of see how things fit together but the whole idea of you know evolutionary theory or kind of thinking through the why's or the the wherefores this is never just has not historically been a part of this this course, and I think you you try to bring it into the course. So first of all, is it possible to for people to study this and not immediately wonder, you know, why? And is that whole conversation just said, well, don't worry about it; that's just a distraction? Or why why has this not been part of the curriculum?
0: Right. I think the answer to that is because people try and cover too much content. <laughs> I think they try and get you know they try to ram every single possible feature of anatomy and physiology down the kids' throats in a semester or two, depending on what the kind of class. And I sort of more take the approach, yes, there are some things they have to come out of their knowing, you know, there's there there's going to be a downstream class. Like here, a lot of the pre-nursing students have to take this downstream class in pathophysiology. And so I talk to the people that teach that and make sure that they have down, you know, the pathways and the the physiology they need for that class. But then I've always kind of viewed the job as beyond getting those absolute Basic things in the toolbox that they have to have. They just need to learn how to learn, and they need to learn how to figure things out and do it on their own because that's what they're going to be doing for the rest of their lives after this short, brief blip of school. And so, in that sense, I, I feel like every year I teach, I pull back a little more on the content, and we talk a little bit more about theory, and we build in things like evolution, and we and we we sort of I try to give them a little, a little more global perspective. So they go away and there's a couple muscles in the forearm that might've gotten triaged. I'm okay with that if they are able to sort of think more critically and bigger picture. And so I I think that's the main, the book, the book is ridiculous, right? The book has, I tell them as textbooks have gotten so crazy expensive, I have taken the policy of my class. It says in my syllabus, I would like you to have an anatomy and physiology text that is at least 1000 pages long and was written this millennium. And then we go online the first day and I show them like, here's a good one. It's four bucks. So they they can get a book for very cheap. But that book is, they're 1,200 pages and they're incredibly dense. And I I really view my job as going through that thing and figuring out what do they need to know right now? And what can we sort of table for them to learn later if they go into some specialty field by which they actually you know need to pick up these, these other details. So taking that approach as, freed up a little bit of time in my classes to explore some issues that maybe aren't explored necessarily in other A&P classes.
1: What's kind of puzzling though is that even when people go down that road and they become specialists, rather if they become a dentist or a podiatrist or an optometrist, and you point out that, you know, to become any of those things requires years and years of training, and they may understand the mechanics pretty well, but it's astonishing to me how ignorant they are when it comes to the, the why questions, right? So typically, if you go to a dentist and say, well, why are my teeth crooked? Well, ah, you know, it's genetic. Or if you go to an eye doctor, and you, why, why do I, get... ah, you know, it's genetic. And, and I feel like this is just sort of a who cares, a dismissal? Or is there a, a reason why they're not interested? Because it would seem to me that like, if we really understood the whys, we may be able to reduce the, the prevalence of some of the disorders that they have to remediate
0: you're right and it takes a special care provider to kind of go there i think for most of them there's just not enough hours in the day for them to just stay on top of the day-to-day of their job i think take so much time that they can't put the time into the other piece of it and like i have a it's my wife's cousin she just graduated with a medical degree and she started on the medical path. she's a general surgeon in the upper midwest and and i had a short conversation with her over one of the holidays it was like by the time she had finished medical school and practiced for about a year immediately they were transitioning all these different surgeries that she would do you know appendix, gallbladder, all these different things it was all becoming laparoscopic and and robot driven and she was she had just finished as intensive a training as you can have and already they were immediately pivoting her to a completely different way of doing surgery and it'll be like that I would suspect for her whole career and as a consequence there's probably just not enough hours in the day to throw the Y at it. Another example that comes to mind we read a a great book in my classes a few years ago called Dr. Q. It's about this, it's this incredible story of this physician that he migrates to this country from Mexico and ends up in the States and has this incredible pulled by, you know, pull up for your bootstraps kind of story where he works the fields in California. And then he ends up being the chief of chief of surgery at Johns Hopkins. I mean, it's just an unbelievable story. And he goes, his career path as a physician is to to study and do surgery on these people that have these Neural glioblastomas, these brain cancers that just r- get into their brain like a spider web and, and create this cancerous tissue that is almost just impossible to cut out. And so for the early part of his career, he worked as a surgeon removing these tumors from people's brains and it would buy them a little bit of time. But ultimately, you can't take out a whole spider web of cancerous tissue in a brain and it would come back and the people would, they'd, they'd eventually die, you know, relatively shortly thereafter. And so he kind of made a mid-career pivot where he just said, I've got to look at the why question. I've got to start looking at this from the perspective of why does this happen instead of trying to treat it afterwards. And so he he started doing research on it instead. And that's what I think we need more people doing is exploring that aspect of it rather than we have to have people that that can do the surgery, do the treatment down the end. But you also need people working on the why because you're absolutely right. Without that, none of these things ever get solved. We just put band-aids on them for the rest of all time. Well, when you, in the first chapters
1: where you talk about the teeth and, and eyes, you know, and you walk through kind of the origin of the relatively recent origin of the, both the shape of our face and perhaps not quite so recent, but the movement from the sea to the land and and how that impacts our, our eyes. But I think there, there seems to be some evidence that the you know the mess that our teeth have become and and the uh, impairment of our vision is something that's even more recent, right? That it's not something that our you know, there are some ancestors, you know, our, our 10,000 year ago, ancestors might not have had this, these problems, right? Is it fair to say that these problems have been
0: getting worse with not just becoming humans, but also with, with modernity? I, yeah, I think there's no question they're getting worse. I sort of view it as a doubling down on the issue. I'd like to describe it as I think because of our evolutionary past, we have this this likelihood, this propensity to to develop issues with our jaw and our teeth and the mismatch there or with our vision. And and then the the modern behaviors then really push it over the edge. And in the case of the eyes, you know, it's likely this trapping ourselves inside all the time as children, the eyes just don't develop to the right length. But certainly, the eye has inherent fallibility because it evolved in the water initially, and that makes it. There will always be a bit of a jury-rigged structure as a result. But but we definitely make things worth with some. Worse with some of our modern behaviors with our jaws, you know, kids just don't chew enough, and that the jaw just doesn't even have a chance to develop to the size and strength that it needs to be to fit these giant teeth in it. And then pretty quickly, we just give up and pull the teeth out or slap braces on them, and you know, try and fix it with our modern conveniences. Right. I recently had some surgery done on my on a tooth that had fractured
1: and I'd gotten it infected, and th- this very likely would have killed me if we didn't have kind of modern antibiotics and that that sort of thing but you know i probably would not have had the the fractured tooth potentially if my teeth were not and jaw were not so poorly formed right right, right. by my my upbringing so so modernity giveth and and modernity uh, taketh away right
0: i i always i think all the time about i've never read any data about sort of what percentage of us you know on average <laughs> Would have been knocked off before 40 or 50 years old without sort of modern intervention. I mean, I'd have been in a real pickle. I had my appendix out at 18 years old. And if you needed your appendix out 10,000 years ago, that was, a, that was a tricky one. You know, I mean, you would have had to be, you'd have been gritting your teeth for somebody to cut that thing out. And if you don't get it out, the likelihood of surviving a ruptured appendix, thats us talk about yeah. a bacterial infection run amok. Well, I saw a picture recently of a guy who's a Russian
1: doctor in uh, Antarctica who had to remove his own appendix, which. <laughs> this- stuck down there without help <laughs> seemed like a little bit of a uh, well he was the only doctor i think uh, so he yeah. had, to, had to kind of do it with a mirror but um i'm surprised you actually didn't write a chapter on on the appendix because that's another example of uh, what appears to be a, a bug but you know is is really probably a feature in 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 our ancestral environment yeah. maybe even in large parts of the contemporary environment outside of where we have clean water and so forth right
0: for sure i I have a few folders of like other chapters that I was considering. you know you're restricted on length. They tell you this many words, this many words, so i but the the ones that didn't make the cut, the appendix didn't make the cut largely because I felt like that that ground had been quite well covered. and then the other piece of that is that there's some really modern stuff that's come out that suggests you know that that the appendix has a sort of more of a significant positive role than people realize. It's got the, this new hypothesis of it being sort of a a panic room. For your body, where it can, where it can store bacteria, in case, you know, in case you have a, a real bacterial blowout upset kind of moment, it needs to repopulate your gut with the positive flora. That so, there are some neat ideas that I thought they'd been pretty well covered. The other one that didn't make the cut that has all kinds of interesting biology around it are sinuses. The, the The evolution of human sinuses is a wild story. We end up with all these crazy pockets, but that infection can fill up with stuff in your head. And there's all these amazing hypotheses about why we have all these holes in our skulls. So that's another one someday I'd like to get into, but just didn't make it into this one. Yeah,
1: well, a big chunk of your book is really about the, um, the aches and pains associated with bipedalism, right? And part of the story is why the heck did we become bipedal if it comes with so much so much baggage? And we we've heard there's there's lots of, of stories out there. The one that that I found uh, novel, which I'd never seen before, is this kind of uh, the waiting ape hypothesis. So I was wondering if you could kind of, you know, articulate that and and how you, I mean, I loved how you actually decided to um validate the hypothesis personally with some experiments of your own.
0: Right. I think about that that transitional period a lot. And the two things that always come to mind for me that I stress to my students are that when that happened for hominids, and, and we're going from hominids to hominins at that point, which is sort of this new vocabulary that the paleoanthropologists use, hominins being sort of after that transition to bipedalism, that's what, that's the word used for our ancestors at that point. I stress to my students that when they're thinking about that, they have to understand that was not something that would have been done by choice it would have been something that that had to happen because the food availability or the shelter availability whatever it was changed i mean if everything's going great the animals are not gonna they're not gonna leave where they are if everything's if they're warm enough and their bellies are full and nothing's threatening them so something happened and it was probably climate change that changed food availability so that drives the animals out of the trees and down to the ground but then on the ground it's important to realize that's a monumental huge shift in the way that you get around and it's not something that can happen overnight so how did the transition take place and this waiting so the idea of this waiting hypothesis is that at the time there were and there's good evidence for this that there were there parts of africa that were flooded and had these sort of low floodplains, and the idea is that sort of if you're if you're up on two feet and you're on land and you're right at the moment of that transition, it's a very awkward thing for the body. There's nothing to support the weight of the body. It's tough on the back. It's tough on your knees. It's just, it's really physically difficult. And I stress that in the book, like if you just sort of go into a crouched stance, which is what, which is what it would have had to have been, it wasn't until later that the legs could lock. If you just do that on land, it's terribly uncomfortable. But if you if you get in a little bit of water, kind of hip deep or chest deep water, all of a sudden you can stand on two feet all day long, and the water supports the weight of the body. So there's so that's this kind of new idea about out there about how the transition might that might have taken place. Not that we were fully aquatic and swimming around. That's kind of all been sort of that's sort of this older idea that's been shelved, but that wading might have been an important part of it. And I think it's one of the more compelling ideas I've heard for at least how the transition could have taken place. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see now that that idea is kind of on the table, but if there's evidence, you know, in the next generation of researchers to to support it. Right, and so why is
1: it that we need to have sort of the, the transition, you know, why, You know, we we have one equilibrium where we're in the trees, we have another equilibrium where we're, you know, out in, in the savanna and, and right. the body seems to be optimized for those different formats, but they're so radically different, yeah. presumably that you need to have some kind of transition path. Right. That would make sense.
0: Yeah. And it's a couple million years. I mean, it's a, it's quite a while until you end up with a, the skeletal modifications switching you from hominid to hominin that make it so that you don't really have to be supported anymore. And, you know, you get curves in the back and the the, the shape of the the angle of the femurs changes and all these things happen over a million, you know, a couple million years in that period, sort of between four or five million years ago and two million years ago. And then by then, then you're kind of off and running. Now you're talking about transitioning to the really the members of our genus Homo, and now you have an animal that instead of just kind of probably uncomfortably walking around, can start to run and really can start to take advantage, take full advantage of the bipedal life, right? Because there's huge advantage you got these things free all of a sudden, right? So now there's all kinds of behaviors you can engage in, throwing and and carrying that just aren't aren't part of the are part of the quadrupedal life.
1: Right. And as a result of this, you know, we we have, as part of the trade-off, as part of the price we pay for this, we we have back pain, right? We have foot pain. You know, you talk about how most of the bones, uh, like was half of the human bones are in our hands and in our <laughs> feet. And it makes sense for our hands, right? Because of what we're trying to yeah. do with them, but it doesn't it really used, make a whole lot of sense
0: for our feet. It used to make sense for our feet, right? When they needed to be nimble and grabbing branches and doing all these things, but now they're just, it's just a mess. You got all these all these bones down there that are just pounding the earth, which is not what they were sort of made to do, and they slip and slide and sprain and do all these. So I, I go into one of my favorite sort of researchers that I lean on a lot in this book is Jeremy De Silva. He's this great, great. He's he is the foot and ankle paleoanthropologist at this moment, and and he's written all this this great work about how you know if you were going to design a human foot, this would be the most idiotic design ever. You would not make it with all these parts that could slip around for something that just needs to basically pound the earth. And you see that in animals that have been on the ground for a much, much, much longer time as bipeds, things like birds, they've kind of got it all just into a few bones that are banging against the earth rather than, you know, dozens, literally dozens of bones that, that can slip and slide out of place. So like, like we started off with, right, pros and cons. I mean, it's just, there's incredible things about being up on two feet and having the freedom to use your hands, but it comes at a cost. And for a lot of people that cost is, sore feet. Well, and you mentioned that when we're designing artificial feet, right?
1: So when we design artificial hands, they, they kind of look a lot like uh, actual hands. But when we design artificial feet, they, they don't look at all like feet. If you look at the Olympic uh, runners, right? With those, those big, you know, pendulum things, right? They're, they don't look at all like they have like
0: one, one part. <laughs> that's right. And nothing to slip and slide out of the way. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's exactly what you sort of more like the model you see and ostriches always come up because ostriches just pound the earth constantly with their feet, and they've been at it for a hundred million years rather than five million years you know and that's that's a long time to work out the kinks and if we were still being forced to run several miles a day to forage and gather our food and do the you know i think given a hundred million years a lot of these kinks would probably work themselves out now that we just click a button or drive to the store it's probably not i think we're probably stuck with sore knees and sore feet. But
1: that is our superpower, right? That we can go for super long distances and pursue these animals. So is there any evidence among hunter-gatherers that they have, you know, the same kind of foot troubles that that we have? Or is our foot troubles due in part to our footwear and kind of our, you mentioned sort of squatting in in the book a bit, but I've heard that squatting actually reduces the probability that you're going to have injuries because you you know, stretch the hamstring and and so forth, right. and, Or is it just that hunter gatherers? You know, they they usually stop doing this by the time they're <laughs> they're forty, and so they're not they're not Good running point. into the same problems that we run into.
0: Yeah, I think there is some evidence that that the way that they run and the way they grow up, and especially if they're barefoot all the time, you know, that that can lead to a healthier foot. It's kind of what has born this barefoot revolution in running, and 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 a lot of data is being collected right now to support it. I just I'm trying to write some questions that that profs and teachers can use in their classes with the book, and and, and one of the things I'm doing is finding some new papers with some more modern research, and I just found this fascinating article a couple of weeks ago that I'm incorporating into the questions for the foot chapter, where they took kids from a school in South Africa, where the kids had grown up barefoot their whole lives, and a school in Germany, same age kids, matching them as well as they for kids that had grown up and shod their whole lives. And then they put them through this battery of tests, we're going to test you for balance, we're going to test your jumping, we're going to test your sprinting. And it was fascinating. Like the kids that had grown up barefoot were better at certain tasks. They were better. They had much better balance. They'd run them on a balance beam and the kids that had been barefoot their whole lives had much better balance. But the kids that had been shot were better in other things. They were a little bit faster. They were, you know, a little bit. So it was sort of, there was like this trade-off and it depends on what skill you're looking for, you know, but the. The sort of conclusion of the paper was that ultimately some balance is probably good. The kids that are in shoes all the time need to be barefoot a little bit more growing up. It develops their, the strength of their foot in a different way and their balance in a different way. But I think we're just at the start of that conversation in terms of which of those is best. And I suspect, I'm one of those biologists that believes the answer is almost always in the middle. <laughs> I suspect the answer will be that both parties could benefit a little bit from the other behavior. Well, it'll be interesting to see if they
1: continue this longitudinally to sort of look and see if there's any pathologies that that develop differentially across these these, these different groups, right?
0: As a scientist, one of the things I, I ask as in these questions, I say, "Are there anything about this study that you would change or that you felt that could be done better?" I mean, ultimately, that experiment needs to be done with randomly divided kids from the same environment. And we, we get to them early and you could do this in parts of, I mean, they could take that South African group and be like, all right, now this school, we're gonna, these these are as close as you get two. shoes, right? Yeah, we're, we're gonna give this school shoes and this school not, and we're gonna follow those kids for 30 years and see what happens. That's what you really need to get to get at the answer and go in every year or two and test them for the different kind of things they did balance and speed. And that would be a fantastic, but logistically a you know, nightmare.
1: Well, I mean, you could do, I mean, you know, we've done some of those longitudinal studies on things like diet, right. And so forth. I mean, presumably we could do that. We could maybe take kids and put them in outdoor classrooms and see if their, you know, vision is better. We could take some kids and give their parents, you know, beef jerky or whatever. And then say, here's some free beef jerky. Let's see what happens. And Exactly, and then uh, track them. We probably wouldn't have to track them that long. We could probably
0: track them until they were, you know, teenagers, and, and oh yeah, see if with, with, with teeth, you'd have you'd have everything you needed by the time they were thirteen, fifteen years old. With some of the other things, you might have to go a little bit longer. But but you're right. As long as you're careful and don't let your shoe fund your shoe study be funded by Nike, you, you should be good. You know? Well, but even if it was funded by Nike, they could offer multiple
1: types of shoes, some of which were more informed by you know, the plantigrade approach to, to walking and, and the other one, right. the other approaches, right?
0: Right. I'll just, may, I just will insist that my researchers at the end of the thing are, it's, that it's a blind, that it's blinded at the end of it. Well, like that's finest, that, that'd be
1: tough to know,
0: you know, conceal what kind of shoe you're wearing. No, no, I just mean when when we bring in the physician for the assessment, they, they do not know whether the kid was shot or, bare, you know, or barefoot. Well, it'd probably be visible, right? Because your your
1: foot would be yeah. considerably wider, right? Um, yeah, you I don't think you... so.
0: It'd be interesting enough to know if the, see if the arch, you know, the, how does the development of the arch change for you know being in shoes versus not? I've I've started to look at kids' feet. One thing I didn't realize until I was doing all the reading for this book was I didn't realize we didn't come out with arches. Like I didn't know that we all come out flat footed and that arches. So right as I was writing that chapter, my daughter was right in that age when the arches starting to develop in her foot. And so I I was kind of looking at at that with a whole fresh set of eyes, all these things that you've never noticed your whole life, that kids just have flat feet and it doesn't kick in till they're five, six years old.
1: Yeah. When I noticed, I noticed when I started doing yoga and and I was trying to stand on, on one foot and I realized, well, my foot's so narrow (laughs) that it's kind of hard. And you look at some of these people that have been doing this for, for years and you notice that their, their feet are capable of so much more you know, breadth because right. they spend less time in
0: shoes. Yeah, that in, that inspires me to spend less time in shoes because I have these feet where, I mean, the, they my toes just overlap like that, but mm-hmm. they're just cramped together. And I just can't even begin to, I can maybe do that for about two seconds, but then they immediately snap back. And I think it's ultimately, yeah, I mean, I, I like to think I'm not, it's not too late, but it's going to take some training at this point to get those things to spread back out to their natural width.
1: <laughs> well, now what about the back pain? Cause that's another one. And apparently I think in, in the book, you mentioned that this is, you know, among the top ailments that people complain of in, in developed economies. It's, you know, way up there at the top of the list. Now I think there's, there's some people that are doubtful that they think this pain is something else and it could be treated with phantom surgery and placebos and stuff but there is some design flaws in, in the back. And you talk a bit about a lot of people think it's just due to sitting and sitting is the new smoking and, and, you know, the modern lack of exercise and so forth. But but you argue that it's a modern lack of exercise and so forth, but it's got design problems.
0: Yeah, I, I do think it's inevitable. I think all the, the only question is it's, it's a when, not an if. Are you lucky enough that it holds off till you're 55 60 70 or if you're unlucky it kicks in you know in your 30s or even earlier and it's all those curves i mean the the other hominids the chimps and gorillas those they all have a a c-shaped spine and it kind of forces them forward it's why they they don't like to walk on two feet they can do it but they kind of they kind of want to topple forward because of their c-shaped spines so to, to pop an animal like that up on two feet was going to require some curves into the spine. So there are these, there's these natural curves that built over that transitional time into the human spine. And those curves are delicate and they, they have to be maintained or you get, you get discs slipping out of place and pushing on a neural tissue. And as soon as that happens, incredible pain ensues. And the take home message for me about the spine, and I really came at this from, from talking to a lot of different people that I had just been wrecked by their back was it was all core strength if you kept your core really strong then the muscles because it's the muscles of the back and your and your abdomen and your obliques all those muscles work to maintain the shape of those curves and as soon as those muscles weaken then those curves start to sort of slide out of place and 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 that's when that's when it all falls apart and so we do have some control over that if you keep that core nice and strong the the kicker is that you're, everybody's only one little slip away, you know, in an acute event from from sort of something unlucky happening that that can cause it to derail also. So there is, there's a lot of luck involved in that also. In so sitting conditions.
1: sitting in front of a computer all day probably isn't the best thing for your back.
0: Yeah, no, I day. mean, it's definitely not the best thing. I think the, but standing in front of a computer all day is also not good for right. your back and probably isn't going to hurt your feet also. I think the ultimately the answer is you just got to mix it up and you spend some of the day. Just be walking around, moving as much as you can, and 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 transitioning from one thing to another. And I mean, it's tough when you have to sit. And I mean, I, it happens to me. I get to writing, I get to do stuff. I get down the rabbit hole, and two, three hours go by, and I have barely moved a lick. And you have to try and force yourself out of that, and just just hop up and you know go do twenty pushups and take a break, and then come back.
1: <laughs> right. And so standing on your feet all day teaching is is also not no not a great thing for
0: your back. <laughs> That's exactly right, and and it's also. And it's, that one's also tough on my feet. I've had to, as I've gotten older, I've had to develop strategies for those six hour lab days where I just go back to back. Today wasn't one of those days, actually. Or at the end of the day, my man, my feet are just absolutely barking at me.
1: Now in your discussion about the knee, you know, there's great conversation, great discussion about the built-in flaws that we've got to deal with. But, but what I found most interesting in that segment was your discussion of these kind of atavistic traits or these traits that where... You know, it reminded me. I think there was this this movie that came out in the '70s, right? And I can't remember what it was. Altered States, right? And and they had the, this. I don't know if you remember this movie, but it was, it, it was sort of expressing the idea that all of the information that was used to create all of our ancestors. Oh, you know, we, yeah. we we just, in other words, we have like an append. It's almost like an append-only database. Yeah, true, we that, just yeah. keep adding stuff, and we don't we don't actually delete a lot of stuff, right?
0: I hadn't really ever thought of the genome in that way, and then I, I had this student that that had this this wild experience with her knee, where she just had all these tons of knee surgeries by her early twenties, and so I started reading about her condition. This condition, she had a discoid medial meniscus, but there's, and I came to realize that this, it's more common. So the meniscus is usually sort of this crescent shaped. The lateral meniscus is usually this kind of crescent shaped tissue, and I. I came to realize, I came to learn that, that there are a certain percentage of the population that have this, this meniscus that should be shaped one way and instead it's shaped like a disc. And it turns out that it's, it's a reversion to the ancestral state. And as I read about it more and more, I, I came to realize that, yeah, like the genome, when, when things change and, and genes duplicate and genes evolve, a lot of the old information is still in there. It's kind of turned off, it's down-regulated and it's not necessarily used, but it's still sitting there just like a crop like a tail like,
1: like you could you could be born with yeah, a tail, exactly. like so
0: and 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 we see you can see a lot of this embryologically and developmentally will traits will sort of kind of start and they have to head down a pathway and all humans sort of go through a process where they might have you know where they do have everybody's got a little bit of a tail embryologically as they develop and then in most humans those genes turn off and go away and the whole thing regresses and you're born without a tail but not in everybody and every now and again, somebody's born with a tail because it's still in there; it's still part of the book, if you will. And there are a few of these kinds of traits around the body. So you know, there are some that don't really cause that aren't that big a deal, like an extra nipple or something like that. That are way more common than I realized. It's like a couple percent of people that have a it's called a supernumerary nipple, and it's this this atavistic trait that's that's written into our DNA from when when we descended from animals that had far more nipples than we have now. And then you get into ones that can actually cause problems. Like when the meniscus comes out shaped one way that really worked better in a quadruped than it does in a biped. And that causes those knees to shift and slip and blow out and tear ligaments. And then once you kind of start down that path of a troubled knee, it really seems like it just snowballs. And all of a sudden the cartilage, once the ligaments, once you get damaged to the ligaments, the cartilage got to do more work. And then the cartilage starts to wear down and the cartilage, we can't really even do anything for you if the cartilage starts to wear out. There's still yet, I mean, it's, it's you know, even in the 21st century, there's not a lot that, that modern medicine can do for you when some of that padding wears out. You know, other than a total knee replacement, which is going to change the way your knee works forever. So yeah, these atavistic traits, I, It's one of those topics that I had to leave it behind and, and move on, or I was going to spend 20 years writing the book, but I'd like to now that it's done, go back and learn about other ones. Because I bet there are other interesting atavisms in the body that that I don't even know about.
1: So that student of yours presumably would have been really good at the four-legged uh, race Olympics, right? If we, if we had such a thing, right? <laughs>
0: yeah, her, knee, her knee was set up to have her do the fourth. The four-legged 100-meter dash. That's right.
1: I think that might be we that might be a candidate for for the next Olympics. We could, we could probably try to smuggle that wow, in. Oh man,
0: that's, yeah. People haven't. They're, 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 I, I tell people the link in the book. If you haven't gotten seen, watch the video of the guy that is the world record holder in the four-legged 100-meter dash. It's just wild to watch. I mean, he runs it in 15 seconds flat, and it, it's it's kind of incredible to see that even though we have this body that's now five million years removed from being a quadruped there's still enough quadrupedal DNA in there that you can scamper down the down the track pretty quickly if you're motivated. Well, now another fun fact that I learned only from this book is that the babies can
1: both breathe and swallow at, at the same time, right? So their their larynx is way up in their throat and you can even see it sometimes when you look in their mouths when they're very young and only later does does it descend. And that's one reason why even if they knew how to speak, they probably couldn't speak, right?
0: Yeah, that's right, because they don't, they don't have the space above the larynx necessary to kind of form the words into something other than sort of oh and ah, and they can't make a lot of those sounds that are a, an integral part of human speech until the larynx starts to descend. But then, of course, once it does descend, the, the beauty of, the, of an infant in terms of their larynx is that it's sitting high up in their throat, and it gives them this just perfect separation of those two pathways, of their pathway for air and their pathway for food. So, like like you said, they can they're a nurse, they don't even have to come off the nipple, and as long as their nose isn't all stuffed up, which it sometimes is, but as long as their nose nose isn't stuffed up, they can breathe the whole time while they're nurse as soon as that larynx descends. Now, all of a sudden, those pathways have to cross the pathway for air and the pathway for food have to cross, and now you have a setup that is makes you prone to choking, and it's and kids are especially prone to choking because the opening is about that big for their trachea. And if anything goes down the wrong pipe, it's likely to get stuck. And they're not really out of that woods. I mean, I, geez, I was, I was hacking up my daughter's grapes and hot dogs until, she, until very recently. She's about to turn nine. And I was cutting those things up into teeny little bits until very recently when I feel like she's just now starting to kind of come out of the years where you have to really worry about it a lot. And then we all get back into it when we're older and the muscles weaken that, that kind of help keep the separation and everything intact. Yeah, one thing you—the one thing I learned also is that you, you mentioned
1: like there's an entire journal on swallowing. There, there's an <laughs> entire uh, journal on the meniscus, right? There's <laughs> like an yeah. academic journal for every single body part yeah. it seems, and every single bodily function.
0: Yeah, and and a book on them. I mean, the meniscus one killed me. Like, I was digging into that and really trying to figure out and understand, and I, and I kept coming back to this one reference. And I would when look at it, I would be sure it would just be a journal article or something like. No, nope, it wasn't. And it was—it's a 435-page book on the meniscus you know? I mean, it's just the, the devil of detail out there is unbelievable well i'm glad you read it so i don't
1: have to yeah um, exactly right but i think that the lesson of the throat and and the windpipe is one that really does make your point very strongly right you know when we think about rivers changing their course right you know the mississippi river has a big oxbow in it and then you know one day it just starts going in, in, in another direction that's not how evolution works, right? So evolution would never have come up with the the Fosbury flop, right? It would have just kept trying to do the scissor jump higher and higher and higher and more and more efficiently, but it would never, you know, there would never be this discontinuous flip, like pushing your lungs to the back of your, of putting them behind your, your stomach and so forth, right? Like that's never going to happen.
0: Right. I mean, the people that were doing the scissor kick just would have all... Probably just died at some point, and some other thing that did it, that came and jumped over the bar completely differently would have been the one that went on to survive. You know, but it probably wouldn't have been the same species, right? So it wouldn't have yeah, been likely something different. Which is, I think, why when you get these giant—I mean, why, I love to talk about the giant climactic, like when you know these these extinction events, the Permian-Triassic extinction event, and the Cretaceous, the the KT boundary—in my classes were the permian Triassic extinction event, the one that was 250 million years ago, 96% of known organisms wiped from the face of the earth, you know? So the environment changes in some dramatic way. And yeah, most animals just were not able in that moment to to pivot in a way that, that allowed them to get through that. And a few did, of course. And then those go on to diverge and radiate and repopulate the earth until the next Incredible extinction event, but yeah, you're absolutely right. When those things come along, it tends to wipe out a lot of the animals. One of the side
1: effects of the, our throat organization is snoring and 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 sleep apnea. And you talk about this. One thing I read was that the muscles of the larynx and, and can be strengthened through through song or through well, interesting you know, wind wind instruments. And yeah, and that's so... an
0: interesting study to be done. Like looking at at rates of sleep apnea and you know in 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 orchestral players versus their spouses. (laughs) And that'd be fascinating to see whether or not you can really train those muscles to, to stay strong in such a way that, that it helps keep your windpipe open Mm -hmm. during sleep.
1: Because I mean, the role of song in our culture has been sort of diminishing sort of monotonically for the last thousand years. Right. And so, I mean, is there any evidence that sleep apnea and snoring is, is also sort of a, a more of a, a modern phenomenon than than it would have been in in say our ancestors. Really
0: interesting question. That's not one I've ever read about. And you know, whether or not those muscles have, have weakened over time is not something that everything I've read suggested that as long as we've sort of had a lowered larynx, which is not as you know, that happened a little more recently than most people realize. The it's a tough thing to study in, because those are all soft tissues and none of it fossilizes all that well. So you have to study the structures of the neck, the vertebrae in the neck and the the shape of the skull. But what I've read is that the the number that I kind of have in my head from everything I read was that somewhere around 50,000 years ago is when sort of the modern head and neck comes into place. That means for most of the time, humans have been humans. They weren't capable of the type of speech that they are now. But. The Other things about snoring and sleep apnea suggest that when that happened, that that probably sort of entered the human the human lineage. Now it'd be it'd be fascinating to sort of tackle this idea of whether or not you know people that incorporate more of an exercise or a, a pastime something something musical something song related have the op- opportunity to keep those muscles intact in such a way that that maybe they don't go down a sleep apnea or snoring path. That's a, that's a really cool idea.
1: Well, you've spent a lot of time also on the book uh, about reproduction and pregnancy and giving birth. And this, I think there's, this is probably the the mother of all trade-offs, right? (laughs) You know, and it's been written about extensively. But what I didn't know about was the uh, the kind of ham and egg stuff that you you mentioned, right? So could you talk about that? I mean, it seems like the trade-off that we all know is that humans need big brains. Humans are also bipedal. So those two
0: together are a bad combination, right? Yeah the question it all starts with the question right and the question that sort of drives that 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 hypothesis is looking at answering is why are human babies born so much earlier than it seems like they should be you know why do they come out so completely and totally and utterly helpless and they really do compared to so many other species i mean ours just come out and even other altricial animals like a like a rat or a wolf or something, yeah, you know their eyes are closed and they're a little, but pretty quickly they're kind of up and at them compared to a human. And and of course some precocial animals, see, so you, you need a whole other trimester really to to keep the thing in there and get it up to the point where it could be a little more you know independent at birth. And it impacts it impacts our lives in such an, an enormous way because that that child requires all this this tremendous amount of care. So why not just leave it inside a little longer? So the the hypothesis that dominated the discussion forever was this this idea of the obstetric dilemma that so because we're up on two feet and the shape of the hips change and they've got the kids have these giant brains that basically if if the woman's body if it was going to keep that kid in there any longer she wouldn't even be able to walk because the shape of the hips would have to change such you know would have to be so different and it's an easy idea to kind of wrap your head around that there's this trade off between bipedalism and birth and. And so that, that idea kind of dominated the discussion. Well, then once people started collecting evidence for that idea, sort of actually measuring pelvic width in current women and all the way back in the fossil record, it turns out the evidence isn't great to support the idea. In fact, our hips, a woman's hips could, could even sort of spread a little bit wider than they do currently, and still she'd still be okay bio, biomechanically and able, to, able to, to run around. And there's not even quite the gender differences aren't quite as significant as people thought. So this woman, Holly Dunsworth, has sort of thrown this new idea on the table that it's really more driven by metabolism and energetics, that the kid reaches a point, again, because of the ridiculous brain that, that humans try to grow, that you reach a point where the child cannot be supported metabolically anymore on the inside of the on the inside, that, that it has to be born to be able to provide for it energetically, that that you reach a point where the woman just can't provide for it more any, metabolically.
1: So it requires more metabolism on the inside than on the outside.
0: Yeah. And you reach a point where it has to be birthed for that reason. And it just so happens that in humans, that happens before the brain is fully developed because we're trying to grow such a ridiculously large brain. So we end up with these brains that are relative to other animals that are born. Ours are underdeveloped. They're still big because we have big brains, but they're not as big relative to where they're going to get. And so you end up with a kid that just come out and they're they're just not sort of ready for this world. And so it's it's another one of these cases where you sort of have a an older idea and now there's a new idea coming in and we'll see the evidence, I think, is starting to fall down in favor of this sort of energetics of gestation and growth, I think is what she calls it, hypothesis. But it's a fascinating new idea in that field that, that attempts to explain that that aspect of there's so many other pieces of it. That's just one piece of it is you know, why kids have to come out early.
1: Well, we're certainly seeing a rise in the number of uh, cesareans, right? And you know, I I don't know how quickly people can can evolve, right? I mean, certainly we've seen examples of of people evolving faster when it comes to kind of lactose tolerance and so forth. And, And some people have speculated that if we just move entirely to kind of cesarean birth, then Women's hips can get even smaller. Right?
0: Go in a totally different direction. Yeah, the, the rate of cesarean sections has gone up. I, I think birth has sort of hit the points. The one spot for me where you're finally sort of being checked by natural selection. Because you have these brains that, you know, the, the brain got bigger as humans. First, you have the bipedal issue, which did change the shape of the birth canal. That's the first sort of piece of the, the, the difficulty of birth puzzle. And then the brain gets triples in size, you know, in the period of time from five million years to a couple million years ago. And then with modern nutrition, the thing, you know, you're able to feed that that fetus in a way that it's never been fed before. So you, so women can develop and grow this, this child that's just bigger than it's ever been. You put all that in the stew and mix it together and you've got a problem. And I think you're, we've reached the point in time where it's finally kind of being checked by natural selection. That's part of the explanation behind the explosion c-section rates and then the other part is just is just doctors scheduling their lives and patients scheduling their lives and everybody trying to do things on a on a sort of i'm gonna have my child on november 15th at 10 10 in the morning and then do this in the afternoon you know and and that's probably not what we should be doing you know that's a lot of those things need to just follow their more natural schedule and so that, that's also part of the explanation <laughs>
1: Well, there's a whole other avenue that you could have gone in if you had more time, which had to do with kind of metabolism and nutrition. And, and you mentioned just this in a very small part of that chapter about kind of diabetes during during pregnancy and, and how this is actually a, a, a huge problem, particularly for people who are coming from kind of ancestries that, that did not have a lot of sugars in, in their background. Right. So it's not just a problem when these people move to the Western world, but also they are having big changes in their diets in the countries in which they live, right? And right. so this is this is becoming a global problem.
0: Yeah, and they have and they have bodies that sort of were have evolved under conditions where they're like you said there weren't access there wasn't access to historical access to a lot of carbohydrates. So their bodies have evolved in a way to kind of hoard carbohydrates when they can, and now we're just flooding the environment with sugars and carbohydrates, and it makes it so that it does it sets a woman up to to run into trouble when she becomes pregnant and and you overload the system and you put a, you put a fetus in there that starts to manipulate her physiology. That's a big takeaway for me from the reproductive section of the book is to realize that this relationship between the mother and the unborn child is there's, there's some conflict there. They have sort of yeah. competing interests, they're, they're, right? As I like to say, they're, they're frenemies. Yeah. That's a very, that's very well put. They are frenemies. Right. That's right. So they kind of they 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 have to look out for each other a little bit, but only to a degree. the The, the fetus is going to push the envelope as much as it can, and take as much as it can from the mother, which which really, to me, is one of the more interesting explanations beyond menstruation, which is something we haven't talked about yet.
1: Yeah, I wanted to because I, I you know you you talk you talk about the fetus as like a a vampire, right? <laughs> like a a parasite, and the mother has to develop mechanisms to sort of protect herself from this 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 vampire and. And of course, I've, I've heard about the placenta as a defense mechanism, right, as a protective barrier against this parasite, as a security system. But you also mentioned menstruation as, as a preventative tool. So how does that work?
0: So yeah, that, that was the most interesting chapter of the whole book for me to write. It was the one chapter I went into not really having any idea where the answer lay. And so the first thing I learned when working on sort of the big question of why do human females menstruate, the first thing that that I learned was that, well, most mammals don't. And I, I had an idea about that, but I never really got into the details of it. And it turns out, you know, 95% of mammals do right. not menstruate. Well, I mean, anyone
1: who's been around livestock, right? Or even have pets in their home, you know, noticed this and-, and Yeah.
0: And they- you know, You don't have little,
1: there's no, there's no tampons for your dog or for your your horse.
0: (laughs) But it's amazing. Even when I tell it to people, a lot of people, they've seen their dog and they've seen some blood coming out and they think, oh, well, my dog, my dog does that, but, but it's not menstruation. Like your dog is, is, is having some discharge related to going into heat or some other thing. It's not menstruation. And so that was kind of the first thing I had to figure out how to explain. But then I quickly got into, you can't go down to the why does menstruation happen path very far before you get into this nasty, difficult term to understand, which is called spontaneous decidualization. And for a while, I just kind of put it in my outline and tabled it. And I was like, all right, I'll figure that out later. And finally, I couldn't put it off any longer. And I got to that chapter. And, and what that term means is that the the uterine lining changes. And that's the decidualization part. That word just means the change in the uterine lining. And in most mammals, it changes in response to pregnancy. So they do not change. They do not make giant cellular physiological changes to their uterine lining until they get pregnant. So that's the way it works in in most mammals. But in humans and and the other old world primates and and a few random things on the tree, like there's some bats and a couple of shrews, it changes in preparation for pregnancy. It changes spontaneously. That's the spontaneous part of the puzzle, spontaneous desidualization. And it turns out in all the animals that do that, that change it spontaneously, those are the ones that menstruate. Once that lining has changed, once you've made changes to that cellular lining if the animal does not get pregnant then you can't go backwards you can't rewind those cells back to their original state and they just have to be gotten rid of so that you can do it again the next month you can't just keep them in that permanently decidualized state because it's all under hormonal control the hormones change every month and that all has to just get sloughed out so then i realized turns out that the question was not why do Females menstruate. The question is, why do they change that lining? Why do they undergo that process? And because that is really what drives menstruation. There's two really strong hypotheses for it. One of which is drives to the sort of you know fetuses as vampires idea, where the the fetuses in humans just burrow in to the human female to an almost unprecedented degree. They they get right in there next to her vasculature in such a way that they can then release hormones that manipulate her blood sugar and her you know her physiology in ways that can potentially be dangerous and so one hypothesis is that by changing that lining before pregnancy you can sort of build in a little bit of defense against against the in impending in invasion by the by the embryo and fetus it allows you to build a little bit of physical mechanical defense that keeps them from burrowing as far as they would without that And there's great evidence to suggest that whose uterine linings are unable to do that to quite the same degree. They sort of suffer from more miscarriages and more and more problems with their pregnancy than women whose layers decidualize as they should spontaneously. The other piece, and this is the most fascinating sort of what, why does that happen kind of thing to me, is that, so the other hypothesis is that human it drives to the fact that humans make really, really error prone embryos for reasons that as I've never read a good explanation for. It. You bring a perfectly healthy sperm together with a perfectly healthy egg. And more times than not in a human, it makes a embryo that has chromosomal aberrancy. It's got it's got these chromosomal issues, maybe not a whole chromosome missing here or there, but pieces of chromosome that have moved to another one. It's just chromosomally off kilter. More embryos are like that than not to start off with. And a woman whose layer has spontaneously decidualized properly is able to detect an embryo that has really, really significant problems and it naturally aborts it. And if a woman for uterine lining, if for whatever reason is not able to do that, she's more likely to carry that error prone embryo deeper into pregnancy. It's likely going to miscarry later on as it gets to sort of later stages of development. So that's the second idea is that it helps sort of, it helps a woman's body naturally select for the healthiest pregnancies. Fascinating stuff. I mean, it's just like this, this whole world, everybody's out there, you know, half the population's out there spending 40 years of their lives menstruating. Nobody talks about why. And only recently have people started to look into it. And I just think it's the most fascinating biology on earth. And costly
1: and modern women do it Far more than our ancestors, and also far more than these other primates and shrews and, and bats that menstruate, right? Because they are either pregnant more frequently or or uh, lactating more more frequently, right?
0: You're absolutely right. And the yeah, well, a woman now will go through you know hundreds of cycles in her life, whereas historically it would have been you know maybe a hundred, but not most of the time. Like you said, they were either pregnant or nursing, in which point they're not menstruating, and the. It's interesting you brought up the socio sort of economic piece of it, because I, I feel like people are just now starting to pay attention to that. It should have been something people were paying attention to forever, but I feel like I'm starting to see more headlines about about colleges that are providing, you know, all all feminine hygiene products to their students and those kinds of things. And that just needs to just take off worldwide. I've even seen, I forget which country, maybe it was New Zealand. I've heard a couple headlines where countries are starting to sort of tackle the issue Yeah at the countrywide level. We're just gonna- There's
1: a entre- famous entrepreneur in India that, that has made yeah. available low-cost menstrual products because yeah. in India, apparently, at least among the more traditional low-income folks, it's they, they don't have any any right. um, anything to, any products for them.
0: Which changes everything in terms of when that time goes along, your ability to, you know, how you can go off and do the work that you need to do. If, every, if the, some of those things are taken care of the way that they should be, it, it allows women to elevate the way that they, that they should. Well,
1: there's one other thing in, in, in the chapter on reproduction you mentioned, which is the, the sperm count. And and you talk about how that seems to be in decline in, in modern societies. I've read that this, there's conflicting evidence on this and, and some people talk about exposure to chemicals and, and so forth, but but it could also just mean that there's it's expensive and we don't really need it, right? So if we're not engaging in sperm competition, right, so what is really driving that? What are the different theories behind that that we see?
0: Yeah, that's an interesting. So the most things that I've read are try to pin it kind of on on modern conveniences and modern, you know, the, the way that our food is processed and the way that all these different things that flood into our bodies. And nobody's really pinned down anything in terms of uh, that I've seen that that really gets at the answer. The, the correlation that has been met, like you brought up, is that sort of in the in developed countries that, that sperm counts have been lowering. This that's an interesting idea about whether or not sperm competition is taking place more in certain countries than others. I mean, if there are places where where people are sort of more in traditional, monogamous, committed relationships, yeah, you're right. Those people, you know, sperm count is or sperm competition is is less of of a factor in those kinds of environments. And and we grew up where we evolved rather, if we grew up, we evolved in an environment where sperm competition probably played a pretty significant role and that that drove this this ridiculous increase in, in sperm count that made it so that you literally need hundreds of millions of sperm just to fertilize, you know, to successfully fertilize a single egg. And have we sort of started to head down a path where, where that is kind of less of an aspect of our biology anymore. And it's kind of painted us into a corner where we might not produce as many sperm as we as we used to because of the way we behave now. So it's uh, to me it's one of those topics that people aren't really talking about as much as I feel like people should be talking about it because the numbers are quite perilous. I mean, we sort of are it's kind of like the climate change issue where you it's clearly going on and are we going to hit a point where it falls off a cliff? And I feel like the sperm count issue is a similar kind of issue. It's clearly declining. We don't really know why, and the climate change, we have a much better idea of why it's happening. But with the sperm count, well, we don't really even know why. And you have to wonder if we're going to reach a point where it becomes a significant societal and cultural issue. I mean, there's already so many couples that struggle with fertility that I feel like it's going to be a big issue in 21st century biology. You know, we already
1: are at the point where we can't survive without culture and science. And so it may well be that we lose our capacity to reproduce without you know medical assistance right
0: it'll be interesting to see it would be great it'd be fascinating to have a crystal ball and jump out a hundred years and see if if humans are you know a hundred thousand years whatever how far you have to go to see if humans are still reproducing in the historical traditional way
1: well one last question Uh, you talk about to get back to your back you talk about sleep and the trouble you had sleeping and did you ever build yourself a, a gorilla bed and, and and try it out and, and did your what did your wife think of that I mean did you ever you ever go out and sleep in a tree and and see what it was right.
0: like <laughs> you know I, I treat sleep the same way that with many of these other issues I think mixing it up is kind of the key so I've, I've learned to I I've tried to keep the core strong and I've learned to for me I think a big Thing with sleep is is no so I haven't I haven't moved up into the treehouse yet. But what I have tried to work on in recent years is, and it's hard once you get those patterns really ingrained, is learning to sleep in different positions. So I I think it's important to be able to sleep. You know, can you sleep on your back if that's the way at that moment in time that is causing you the least amount of pain? Can you sleep on both of your sides comfortably? And so it's something I I actually kind of work on is making sure that I can fall asleep in in different positions because not every position is going to work for you at every moment in time. And if you are stuck as a you have to sleep this way, well, as soon as that position starts to give you trouble, then your quality of sleep is going to greatly decline. And I think there's almost nothing more important in life than quality of sleep. And I mean, for me, that drives, I'm all about, you know, you got to have energy to to attack your day. And so, yeah, it's a really, really fascinating topic.
1: Yeah. There's all sorts of new research on the negative impact of poor sleep. And so there's lots of things that you can take away from this book. Lots of uh, advice, even though it's not written as an advice book, there's advice buried throughout the book. Uh, there's also uh, ideas for further research. But I think if your students learn anything from your class, they're probably learning simply to ask the question why. And I think if they forget the uh, name of the, the plantar fascia and they forget different types of menisci that we have, that's probably fine as long as they remember. To continually ask these questions i think that you will give them their money's worth and i certainly think that if you go buy the book you'll get your money's worth too. evolution gone wrong alex it's been a great treat thank you so much for joining me today
0: i really appreciate uh having the chance to talk to you thank you for tuning in to the unsiloed podcast if you enjoyed today's episode please give us a five-star rating and review to listen to other episodes